But my uh, family uh, start, uh, migrated from Augusta, Georgia. That's where most of my family is. That's our ancestral home. But migrated here in the early 40s. My grandmother's two sisters were here. And then, um, uh, then my grandfather and my grandmother moved here with my dad, their only child, uh, during World War II. Uh, and then uh, they moved up to Charlotte, which uh, a few years later, my dad got married and I was born uh, there. But then we moved back here in the 1950s. I didn't live in Charleston. We were in the outcast over at North Charleston is where we lived. And uh, so I was there. And two things um, very important to me. Uh, one is um, uh, is that uh, my my fledgling baseball career started at that time uh, in North Charleston, and secondly, I was bitten with the bug of the um, just absolutely bitten with the bug of history. So I end up with a I end up with a double major of history and and theology, and so I love coming back to Charleston. We've we've helped plant a couple of churches. I've had the privilege to minister at Church Creek. So this, to me, is a very, very special place and for our family. So I feel like, and then to be able to preach in this congregation or to give an address in this building to this congregation is an extraordinary blessing in and of itself. But my text is uh, just to give you some thoughts today uh, around uh, that probably uh, maybe could help prepare us even more to give praise to our God uh, when we gather on the Lord's Day. Look with me in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and they're in Thessalonia. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined them and joined uh, Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, and formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, that's called a bribe, by the way, from Jason and, um, and the rest, They then let them go. Thirteen words in that text that I would love to hear said one more time. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These people. Done what? Turned the world upside down. Come here also. 
They've come here also. Now I want you to stop and think about this. Less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus. And please remember how everyone was scattered in fear on that third day. Less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus. In the European continent. An, a- an absolute adversary of the gospel, a pagan, is now impacted by the spread of the kingdom through the mission enterprise of the church. And his assessment is these people. They've turned the world upside down. And now they've come here also. That's his assessment. Now, first of all, that amazes me. Less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, in the continent of Europe, there are barbarians and adversaries and pagans who are seeing the spread of the church and in recoil are looking at it and in absolute abject frustration are saying, these people, look at what they're doing. They're turning the world upside down and they've come here also. Now, just a couple of thoughts, and then I want to maybe set it in the context of where Church Creek is. Even in the context of this building where you first met and your first pastor was ordained. Uh, How that continues today, 2,000 years later. But here is what you've got to understand. Christ's church. Christ Church, and obviously that would include Church Creek. Christ Church. Christ Church is an unstoppable coming church. It's always coming. That's from the perspective of the world. They're coming. But the only reason the world sees Christ Church as a coming church is because Christ Church is a resolute going church. It's because we are a going church that we are seen as a coming church. But the going church is going because of three things that are seen in this text and seen throughout all of church history. Christ Church goes... Because, number one, we have a commission. And that commission was given to us. You know, a lot of people go to Acts chapter 15, just a couple of chapters before this, to talk about the first general assembly of the church. I actually think the first general assembly of the church was during the 40 days of Jesus' ministry at a mountain in the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus met with the very embryonic church of 11 disciples and gave them the Great Commission, gave them their message, and gave them their ministries. He said, here's your commission, make disciples. Here's your message, teach all that I have given to you. The gospel wrapping of the whole counsel of God. And here's how you minister. You're going. As you're going, evangelism. Then as you're going in evangelism and people are brought to Christ, then you baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, as you evangelize, you then enfold those who are evangelized, they and their household, into the family of God. 
And then what? You equip them, you disciple them, you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what is the result? Well, what the disciples did when they met Jesus. Those who had once fallen short of the glory of God have now been redeemed to give praise and glory to God. When they saw him, they worshipped him. So that's what we do. That's why we exist. The Church of Christ, Church Creek, has a focused mission. Make disciples. You have a comprehensive message. The whole counsel of God with the spear point of the gospel of saving grace in Christ. And you've got a ministry of upreach, worship, a ministry of outreach, evangelism, a ministry of inreach, enfolding, and a ministry of downreach, equipping. That's as you're discipling. That's what we have. That's what we've done. That's why this building is here. Now, whether it continues or not in its mission, always remains to be seen. I'm going to say something today that I'm going to say tomorrow. This is a great time of celebration, but it's also a great time of warning. If you'll check your Bible, try Judges. And if you'll check church history, it's that 40 to 80 year mark that is the dangerous moment in every church, every denomination, every Christian institution. It is at that moment There either is a subtle, deceptive desire to reinvent the mission and therefore the message or to be resolute and stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. Just check your Bible and check church history. The 40 to 80 year mark. I'm in a denomination that is right in that 49th year. Your church is in the is in the celebration of your jubilee, the 50th year. This is a great time of celebration, but it's also a great time of resolution with utter dependence upon the grace of God and the power of God that we stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. And you're going to see God do three things to help you. Number one, he is going to strengthen your purpose. Number two, his providence is going to open doors. And number three, every once in a while to accelerate you or to remind you he'll bring persecution. All three are right here in this text. Paul had to ask the Lord continually. Paul did not want to go across that sea to Europe. That's not where he was headed. He first wanted to go south in Asia Minor. Then he wanted to go north up to Galatia. And the Holy Spirit kept saying no. And God in his providence led him across that sea. Come and help us was the vision. Persecution is about to send him from Thessalonia to Berea and then to Athens and then to Corinth. Persecution many times is that way. I can remember uh, when we lived here, as well as a couple of other places, we, my dad was in minor league baseball, so there was a lot of month at the end of the money. And uh, we did not have the most luxurious places that we lived. And one of the places we lived when I was in the third, uh, second and third grade here was over near Park Circle, which was not the Park Circle of today. Uh, that was a different Park Circle in that day. And up uh, Durant Avenue was some apartments that had been built for the military in World War II. And we had one of those duplex 
uh, we, uh, uh, one side of it, it was called the Calhoun Apartments. I'll never forget it. I think we might have paid $10 a month. I'm not sure what it was, but that's where we were. But we had uh, a yard that was no bigger than this pulpit there area up here in third grade I had a push mower uh, with, you supply the power on these things and uh, and I had a push mower and I would get, and I would be called to cut the grass which was not grass it was weeds that's all we had were weeds and the number one weed in our yard was a dandelion and I will never forget those dandelions and when they would come up in the spring I would run through the yard to kick them because it looked like it was snowing when you kicked them, there's that little fuzzy whatever it is. They just started going everywhere. Well, out the back, out the front door, there wasn't a back door. Out the front door came my mother, and she said, "What are you doing?" Um, and uh, I said, "Oh, I'm just having fun. I'm making it snow, Mama." She said, "No, you're not. You are ruining this yard, which I did not think could be ruined, honestly." <laughs> And uh, she said, you're ruining this yard because every time you kick one of those, all of those things go and make more of them. I have often thought throughout my life, that's exactly Satan when he inevitably. Now, listen to me. If you're a believer, you will suffer persecution to some degree, in some time, in some way. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will. I'm not talking about suffering for the consequences of us. I'm talking about what Jesus gave a benediction upon. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner. Not if, when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my my sake. And so uh, Satan brings persecution. And I don't know why he keeps doing it because every time he does we grow. All he does is kick Christians around. He did it over in England and France and came here and started this unbelievable experiment that we call the United States of America. Uh, It's amazing how persecution actually expands the church. So God's providence opens doors. God's grace gives us purpose on mission, on message, in ministry, resolution. And then God's persecution expands and enlarges the territory of the kingdom. And that's kind of why we're here, isn't it? These was built by the French Huguenots. I've got a member in my church, um, uh, one of my elders, his wife, her family's name is here somewhere. I'm supposed to find it and uh, take the picture and send it to her. Uh, her Her family's name is here. And um, and a lot of people think, well, this is and, and, as as you read, of course, you hear about the Huguenots in uh, in Charleston. 1680 is always the term. Well, actually, it wasn't 1680. Uh, the first Huguenots to arrive in this area was down there in a little place that's dear to my heart. It's called Paris Island. And right there, there was something built called Charles Fort. And right there were a number of settlers that were sent there uh, by France uh, and. Um, And they were sent there to be a buffer uh, between the English and the Spanish. And that's where they were to be. So if you go to Paris Island, um, I recommend it. If you can't get on there, all you have to do is sign up for the Marine Corps. They'll give you a ticket right there tomorrow. (laughs) And then if you go to where uh, uh, where the house is for the officers, you'll see the old archaeological Charles Fort. And in in the records of the men that were there in 1562 were 
French Huguenots. But where did they come from? Well, they came from the Reformation. And the Reformation had come through Luther, Zwingli, and then it came to a Frenchman by the name of Jean Calvin. And he was converted, escaped with his life under persecution, ended up where he didn't want to go, a place called Geneva, got run out after, got run, run out after three years of ministry. Then he was brought back and renewed his ministry. And we began to see this heart-throbbing center, epicenter of the Reformation as men like Knox are trained there. Men like Zwingli are affected from what goes on there. And the Swiss Revolution and the English Revolution and the Scottish Revolution and the Continental Revolution, uh, Reformation, all of that begins to flow from this epicenter. But Calvin understood that the Reformation was a recapturing of the gospel and the mission of the church. So they sent a mission team. Today, the place they sent a mission team, you now today uh, call Brazil. You actually call the place where they landed Rio de Janeiro. They sent a mission team there. He sent missionaries everywhere. Sent missionaries to Scotland. His missionary was a guy by the name of John Knox from Geneva. He sent missionaries to France. Calvin trained 1,300 pastors and church planters, missionaries at Geneva that he sent to France. Then he would sneak over the line clandestine to pastorally visit them and disciple them. And as the persecution began to grow, he continued to do that. Much to the chagrin of his elders who asked him not to do that. But he kept going to do that. And eventually, you saw this expanding group. That's where the French Huguenots that were in that group in 1562 came from. But the ones that we celebrate came here under persecution after the Edict of Nantes um, and um, and the persecution that arose in France. And they came looking for a place where they could have the free practice of religion. And many of them here and up and down the rivers of this area. This became the local church and, uh, and this became the place where the preaching was done. But I love to trace it even further because of how it affects the Presbyterians. There was one of those Huguenot families that lived out on James Island. And it was just a long way to get here. So they went over and got converted to the Presbyterians at James Island. The mother is buried there today. The man's name was Gerardo. And you can see the French name rather quickly. And he has a son named John, who then they send over the river to be educated in Charleston. And as he's educated in Charleston, he comes under the discipling ministry of some very powerful pastors and elders who discipled him. His name was John Jaredo. And there he was at Second Presbyterian Church. And there was there was the first Scots Presbyterian. There was the second Presbyterian. There was a third Presbyterian. And you see this movement. And many of the members were Huguenots that then came because of their common 
uh, common theology. Calvin trained Knox. There goes the there goes the Kirk, the Presbyterian, and Calvin trained the pastors of the French Huguenots. So you could see the theology would be in sola scriptura. The scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. There would be the uh, the overlap, and so they then began to be part and parcel of what was going on here in um, what was going on here in um, uh, in Charleston. Boy, one of my things, uh, John Gerardo, I have five models for life and ministry that I have studied my whole life, and one was John Gerardo. And his, uh, I'm thankful to your pastor, your present pastor, and the pastor of Redeemer who got me to the places I've been looking for on my own for years. The, the church where he met with his African-American. He was a missionary to the low country. Now, remember, John Gerardo, this is no exaggeration, I think in his time was the best preacher in our nation. He had pulpits offered to him in all New York, New Orleans, everywhere. But God called him, he said, to the low country and to the African population. That's where he was called. And so he stayed the course. The lengthy prayer meetings that led to the 1858 revivals and the 1858 revivals that that were multiplied through the shipping lanes from Charleston as the revival spread and impacted New Orleans, London and New York at the end of the 1850s. You know, many times as a historian, I've studied that that's that part of our history. I have often wondered how many men were led to Christ that were numbered in the 700,000 casualties of the Civil War just a few years later. I've often wondered that. Only, only obviously eternity will tell us. But that's on mission, on message, and in ministry. Let me just make one final comment. Thank you for these few moments to speak with you. You can't have a going church that the world sees as a coming church, an unstoppable coming church because of the power of the Holy Spirit that is sending that church and the power of the gospel that they're preaching. You can't have a church like that without leadership. It's Listen, this isn't hard. Just pick up your Bible. Every time God decides to do something, he raises up leaders. I'm thankful for your leaders at Church Creek. I'm thankful for your pastor, who I know personally, that you've called. And I'm thankful for the pastors that I know and have benefited from historically in this church. But don't look back except to learn. We don't live in the past, but we do learn from the past. We live in the present to change the future. Because we're a going church. So to the leaders of this, well, to this church, I would ask you to be a leading church. Lead your presbytery as a going church. Lead your denomination as a going church. But a church that's a leading church has to have leaders that are on mission, on message in ministry. You wouldn't have had the Reformation without Luther. And you wouldn't have had the Reformation without Calvin. You wouldn't have had them speaking of the human instrumentality that God ordains. And you wouldn't have had the Reformation without Zwingli. And you wouldn't have had the Reformation without Bootser. 
And you wouldn't have had the Reformation without Knox or Latimer or Ridley or Cranmer. Let me go further. I am Presbyterian. Plurality of leadership. Because you wouldn't have had Luther without Melanchthon. You wouldn't have had Calvin without Beza. You wouldn't have had Zwingli without Bullinger. You wouldn't have had Knox without Goodman. You wouldn't have had Cranmer without Latimer and Ridley. Plurality of leaders that, by God's grace, lead leading churches. So that the world sees them coming and coming and coming. Unstoppable. On mission. Evangelism. Discipleship, planting churches, sending them out, resolute. And let me just say one more thing. When we follow the Great Commission and it was laid out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world, that's it. That I have, would, I'd love to have some time to go through that with you. I think there's four or five marvelous implications in that. But one of the things that's clear is you see progression, local, regional, national, and international. You don't have to make a decision between the two. I don't want to embarrass him, but um, one of the men that greatly affected my life uh, was the uh, the husband of Gerald's uh, sister, and um, and then and then his father. His father offered me a summer pastorate on the Bahama Islands, and I was stupid enough to turn that down. And, uh, but uh, I do remember, I do remember so much uh, from him. But what I remember this, is here's the same man who in the denomination led both the national missions and then later world missions. We're doing the same thing, it's just a different place. Has to contextualize in the culture, but we're doing the same thing. So you don't have to make a decision. Oh, we'll be a missions sending international. You can be local, regional, national, and impact the world. In fact, that's the way it's designed. I just tried to give you some evidence. Calvin, Calvin is directly responsible for a hundred and something years later, the Huguenots that got here. Calvin sent missionaries to Brazil. Calvin was committed as a reformer to the mission internationally. But he also planted churches in Geneva. And he had a heart for his nation. He trained Knox, who had a heart for the world. But it was Knox that said, give me Scotland or I die. He impacted Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley. And as Cranmer watched Latimer and Ridley burn to death at, at, at Oxford, knowing that he would soon be following them as he did and just a year later, as he watched them, he could hear them say, as Latimer turned to Ridley and said, Master Ridley, be of good courage for today, even as they were lighting the flames, he said, today, we shall light a candle for Christ that shall not be put out in all of England. So there's nothing unbiblical of having a heart for the mission 
in your city. The sweeping revivals of 1858, I pray, come here again. And it comes through leaders and churches. Those days of the Second Press and Jerada. These days, I'm praying it's you. Christ-centered, God-glorifying, Bible-preaching, Spirit-filled. Churches on mission on message in ministry, led by Christ-centered, Bible-preaching, Spirit-filled, Gospel-saturated leaders to the glory of God. Father, thank you for what you've done here in this arena. Thank you for what you're yet going to do. Lord, we learn from the past, but we do not live in the past. We want to live in the present. As we learn from the past what you do and how you do it, And as your word directs us. So, Father, may we hear those words once again in Charleston. May we hear those words in the low country, South Carolina, throughout our nation and to the world. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. God, I would ask you, to whatever degree you ordain it, providentially, persecution, and purpose, I pray that you would give a city shaking, state-shaking, world-shaking ministry to Church Creek. I pray that. And God, I want to thank you for what you have done. We look with expectation about what you will do, knowing our objective is not to turn the world upside down. That's a consequence. Our objective is to turn sinners right side up through the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.